Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good morning. Welcome to Teddy Talks, coming to you from Medora, North Dakota. I'm your host, Joe Wiegand, and I've enjoyed in the months of April, May, and now June, uh, bringing Teddy Talks to you. Uh, we are now exclusively on, on, uh, coming to you via the Teddy Roosevelt uh, Show uh, page on Facebook. Uh, our friends over at the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation, Medora ND. That Facebook channel is so full of the promotions of uh, the activities that are going on here in Medora. Still, carefully, cautiously, smartly, really amazing to see last night at the opening of the Medora musical, wonderful care being given to uh, people seating and wearing masks, uh, washing hands along the way. A wonderful show last night. The stars came out in Medora, North Dakota. The Teddy Talks uh, is designed to go back in history and look at the things that Theodore Roosevelt said, did, wrote, uh, perhaps on that date in question or as we uh, do these weekly communications during the week uh, preceding and concluding with the date of the broadcast. Today is Saturday, June 20th, and it seemed that early June was a, a busy time uh, throughout history. So very often some of what I've left out of going back in history that TR would have known or influenced him especially as a, some uh, young person fascinated by uh, the history of uh, governments and society and military history. Theodore Roosevelt's own first book being a naval history uh, or a history of the Naval War of 1812. But uh, I've skipped a lot of uh, Revolutionary War and Civil War history for we could do a program just on the battles that occurred between spring and fall uh, during those wars. So. Seems the troops were always on the move in June, as were the Rough Riders, uh, eventually heading down to Cuba in that month of June. Uh, June 20th, uh, we have uh, uh, Juneteenth uh, just preceded. Uh, this I knew as a young boy growing up in the land of Lincoln in Illinois, uh, the land uh, of the great emancipator. Uh, I knew that this was a celebration of the day when word came to slaves in Galveston, Texas, uh, on this date, June 19th, 1865, that indeed they'd been set free by the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, which became effective January 1st, 1863, but only in those states that the uh, Union Army occupied at the time. So uh, we all learned a lot more about June 19th and, uh, and Juneteenth celebrations. 
Uh, some uh, used uh, the situation that we're in uh, to have uh, more violent demonstrations. In some areas, uh, statues have been pulled down. And uh, while the focus has primarily been on statues of Confederate generals or slaveholders, uh, uh, slave traders, uh, in the case, I think, in a statue pulled down in, uh, uh, in England. But during these last days, a statue of George Washington, the first president of the nation, the, uh, the general of the Continental Army, our first president, the president who established the tradition of serving only two terms in the executive uh, to protect the American people from the tyranny of uh, dictatorship or uh, some sort of uh, overthrow of uh, a presidency and the establishment of some sort of dynasty. So George Washington, I grew up hearing uh, first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his fellow countrymen. The statue that was pulled down in Portland is one that I'd seen and visited, uh, for it has a connection uh, through its gift to the people of Portland to Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, the, uh, the statue of George Washington was one of a series of statues donated to the people in the city of Portland by Dr. Henry Waldo Coe, C-O-E. And uh, Dr. Coe had been a doctor here in the Dakota Territory during the time that Theodore Roosevelt ranched here. And the friendship between Dr. Coe and Theodore Roosevelt dated to those early and mid-1880s. The uh, doctor uh, moved from the Dakota Territory to Portland, as many Dakotans have done. There's a strong uh, North and South Dakota contingent all along that uh, Pacific Northwest uh, from Seattle down to Portland and further south. The statue that was given by Dr. Coe of Washington to the people of Portland uh, also uh, uh, had uh, its mates uh, elsewhere in Portland in the Parks neighborhood uh, that's uh, uh, just on the near east side of downtown and so frequently the site of uh, protests and marches for its open space that's uh, right then next uh, to and not that far away from Pioneer Courthouse Square, uh, another site of uh, demonstrations and, and a courthouse square. It's a lovely place for celebrations as well and, and all sorts of public activities. The two statues that co-donated in the parks, uh, the furthest north is Abraham Lincoln uh, standing uh, uh, with his hand on his vest and and to me, it's, uh, it's probably Lincoln the orator, or if he's not speaking, he's pondering and perhaps getting prepared to speak. Uh, it's a formal and erect uh, shoulders back, but head down, the melancholy of Lincoln is evident in, in that statue. A couple of blocks uh, to the south and a beautiful little walk through those parks, just outside of the headquarters of the Oregon Historical Society and its wonderful museum, Carrie Timchik, uh, its uh, talented executive director, is one of the equestrian statues done by A. Mr. Proctor of Theodore Roosevelt. It's Colonel Theodore Roosevelt, so uh, I am a repriser. I portray Theodore Roosevelt on stage. I'm 55. Theodore Roosevelt was 39 and in pretty good fit and trim fighting shape by the time he uh, uh, was done training in San Antonio and Tampa headed down uh, uh, to ride his horse, Little Texas, uh, up uh, Kettle Hill. So the equestrian statue as well, the horse is uh, tremendous. The uh, uh, figure of Theodore Roosevelt, uh, reins in hand, a pistol 
on his hip, a, a sword and scabbard at his side. Um, it's a moving statue. He's confident. Uh, he's uh, he's uh, looking uh, northward and, and perhaps taking the vista of Kettle Hill in with his men about him. There's a wonderful plaque by Herman Hagedorn, the historian, Roosevelt biographer. Uh, Hagedorn uh, writes beautifully, and some would say uh, he writes a bit of hagiography and that he really worships uh, the fellow about whom he writes. But there's a plaque on that Theodore Roosevelt statue that's a very moving tribute to Theodore Roosevelt, the, uh, the man, uh, the, uh, the leader. Theodore Roosevelt got a great deal of his inspiration from what he knew about President George Washington. The regard that he held for him as one who not only showed uh, courage and wisdom on the battlefield, uh, an inspiration to his men and to the country, uh, but then the service that Washington gave, the, uh, the establishment of constitutional uh, rule that respected uh, uh, the Congress, uh, the Supreme Court. And of course, uh, we stumbled through uh, the early years of our, uh, of our Republic. But Theodore Roosevelt uh, held in high regard President George Washington. And that's why today, and in connection with the statue of George Washington being toppled in Portland, I'd like to read from remarks that President Theodore Roosevelt made at the dedication of the Washington Memorial Chapel at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, June 19th, 1904, uh, and uh, other remarks made uh, in the last Washington's birthday during which Theodore Roosevelt was still president. We used to inaugurate new presidents March 4th or 5th, uh, uh, 5th, I believe, on, uh, previous to uh, constitutional amendment moving into January 20th. And so February 22nd, 1909, Theodore Roosevelt greeted the return of the Great White Fleet, uh, which had just circumnavigated the globe and did so with remarks uh, uh, on the USS Connecticut and uh, at uh, the naval base at uh, Hampton Roads. Of course, we always do enjoy uh, this date in history. Some of you have told me personally and written that you enjoy the this date in history, a little bit augmented as this date in TR history. Uh, again, going back to uh, not only his compatriots, uh, allies, and foes on the, the, the real battlefield or the battlefield of uh, strife and politics, but also then uh, some of the history that Theodore Roosevelt would have had uh, deep in his heart and his, uh, his understanding uh, that allowed him then to analyze the situations uh, that he was in. So going back in uh, this date in history, uh, uh, during this preceding week, June 17th, 1775, uh, the first of a couple of allusions here to our revolutionary times. This was uh, during the American Revolutionary War, of course, it's early months, June 17, 70, 1775, colonists inflict heavy casualties on British forces while losing the, the battle we know as Bunker Hill. Uh, it's fought on Breed's Hill, uh, but uh, uh, this is the, uh, the famous phrase uh, by one of the officers in the line, uh, do not shoot until you see the whites of their eyes, uh, allowing the British and their formations to march up the hill and suffer tremendous casualties uh, while uh, uh, winning the battle. June 14th, 1777, the Second Continental Congress passes the Flag Act of 1777, adopting the Stars and Stripes as the flag of the United States. 
and June 20th, 1782, the U.S. Congress adopts the Great Seal of the United States. So during this uh, month of June, uh, this third week of June, both uh, the Flag Act, and hence Flag Day being on June 14th, and June 20th, 1782, the Great Seal of the United States. June 14th, 1801, the death of the traitor Benedict Arnold, uh, the American general during the American Revolution turned British spy and, and general in the field. Uh, he uh, died in 1801 in England and uh, really in poverty and infamy. Uh, he thought he would be uh, embraced by uh, the English uh, after the war, but uh, his uh, service was associated with a defeat in the colonies. And as well, uh, the uh, real British officers could not have any regard for a man who would have betrayed the trust of a sworn oath uh, uh, in support of the revolution. So even though he came to the British side, he did not earn the uh, respect nor the, uh, the sort of patronage uh, of the leading British citizens and generals in order to be advanced in British society. Let that be a lesson to traitors. June 14th, 1825. The death of Pierre-Charles L'Enfant, the French-American architect and engineer who designed Washington, D.C. June 16, 1829, the birth in what is today Turkey Creek, New Mexico, uh, then Mexico, of Geronimo, the American Apache leader. Uh, he would ride in the uh, inaugural parade in 1905 of President Theodore Roosevelt. He was in custody uh, of uh, the War Department and uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs uh, um, uh, under the uh, the terms of uh, his surrender and unfortunately died at Fort Sill, Oklahoma in 1909. Excuse me, June 14th, 1855, the birth in Primrose, Wisconsin of Robert M. LaFollette Sr., American lawyer and politician, 20th governor of Wisconsin, senator, uh, presidential candidate contested with Taft and Roosevelt in those primaries in 1912, won Wisconsin and one of the other primary states held that year, and held his delegates through the Republican Convention, had Wisconsin and La Follette endorsed the effort and supported the effort of Theodore Roosevelt at the Republican Convention in 1912, we may have had T.R. as the Republican nominee, and La Follette even withheld his uh, support when uh, uh, T.R. took the head of the Progressive Party uh, uh, La Follette, a fascinating character, Fighting Bob La Follette, would go on in 1924, uh, though uh, a nominal Republican, uh, he wouldn't support Coolidge's uh, election, Coolidge having risen from vice president under Harding, and uh, instead uh, La Follette ran as a third party candidate. Davis, I think the uh, Democratic nominee, of course uh, Coolidge wins in a, a big election, but um, La Follette actually does quite well, something I think on the order of 15% uh, of the popular vote. For a third party candidacy, he comes in third, behind TR in 1912 with 29% of the popular vote. Uh, Ross Perot, I think that would have been 92, and his percentage in the teens, I think, as well. And then Bob La Follette, Fighting Bob of Wisconsin. June 16th, 1858. Abraham Lincoln delivers his House Divided speech in Springfield, Illinois. June 19, 1865, over two years after the Emancipation Proclamation, slaves in Galveston, Texas are finally informed of their freedom. 
Uh, the anniversary is still officially celebrated in Texas and 41 other contiguous states as June 19th. June, uh, as Juneteenth. June 18th, 1873, Susan B. Anthony is fined $100 for attempting to vote in the 1872 presidential election. June 16th, 1882, the birth in Tehran, Iran of Mohammed Mossadegh, uh, Iranian educator, uh, 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 doctor, politician, 60th prime minister of Iran during the time of the reign of the Shah Pahlavi, uh, uh, the uh, Mohosadek uh, regime was overthrown uh, in great part because of the work of Theodore Roosevelt's grandson, Kermit Roosevelt III, uh, known as Kim, uh, who uh, was involved uh, directly on behalf of the OSS, uh, the pregenitor of the CIA, uh, during the Eisenhower administration. This plan was put forward with the support of the British uh, intelligence as well. Uh, June 17, 1885, the Statue of Liberty arrives in New York Harbor. June 14, 1900, Hawaii becomes a United States territory. June 20, 1900, the Boxer Rebellion. The Imperial Chinese Army begins a 55-day siege of the legation quarter in Beijing, China, uh, Peking <clears throat> in those days. And a fascinating story to be told about a young Herbert Hoover and Mrs. Hoover and the role that they play. Uh, Hoover, a, a mining executive at the time in China, and uh, saves hundreds of Chinese Christians from slaughter. Uh, and uh, the, the story is, is one, I, uh, one I recommend to you to, uh, uh, to read if you have an opportunity. June 18, 1910, TR's return to New York City. Uh, this is after his uh, hunt in Africa, his tour of Europe. There's a wonderful story told. Well, TR is uh, met in New York by the, the largest crowd uh, that had been to date and, and uh, uh, parades through New York City. The Rough Riders are his honor guard. Uh, the luncheon is held uh, at the Harvard Club. And uh, there's two little boys from Oklahoma Territory, uh, uh, who had uh, from Oklahoma, who, who had uh, ridden horses all the way from Oklahoma, uh, where their uh, father, a friend of Theodore Roosevelt's, uh, the United States Marshal uh, Jack Catchem Alive Abernathy. These two boys, I'll, uh, I'll miss the uh, the names and the ages. Uh, Bud and his brother. There's something on the order of uh, nine and six years old. Uh, I don't think either boy was 10. They rode their horses the whole way. Some days uh, out in the prairie in the country, other days uh, sort of observed by newspaper men and families and, and uh, fellow marshals and law enforcement and federals along the way. But the boys rode all on their own, camped at night uh, and uh, made it to Washington, D.C. to extend greetings to President William Howard Taft and, and on then to New York, where they, I believe, participated in the parade that welcomed uh, President Theodore Roosevelt back to New York City on, uh, on that uh, date, June 18th, 1910. June 19th, 1910, the following day, the first Father's Day is celebrated in Spokane, Washington. 110 years now of Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all of you out there tomorrow. June 15th, 1912, another arrival for Theodore Roosevelt, this time to Chicago for the start of the 1912 Republican Convention 
and his speeches uh, given at this time are all about uh, the thieves shall not win. And the, uh, the phrase, uh, uh, we stand at Armageddon, is first uttered here and more eloquently so in the subsequent Progressive Party Convention. And June 14, 1914, the last of our on this date, the death of Adlai Stevenson I, a lawyer, politician, the, the uh, 23rd Vice President of the United States and Theodore Roosevelt's opponent on the ballot in 1900. It was a Democratic ticket, William Jennings Bryan and Adlai Stevenson uh, defeated by McKinley and Roosevelt. I did, before I uh, do a little reading from Theodore Roosevelt uh, uh, at the dedication of the Washington Memorial Chapel in, uh, in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. Uh, thank you for joining us uh, through the uh, months on Teddy Talks, having your morning coffee. We used to start uh, an hour earlier. I hope that uh, a little more rest and maybe another chance to have your coffee. This is the wonderful Teddy Roosevelt Show coffee mug uh, that Jenny designed. A beautiful bride of 33 years will celebrate that anniversary this month. And then uh, the wonderful quote that I've uh, really taken heart from, do what you can with what you have, where you are, uh, being used as uh, one of the themes, really a, a headline theme for us here in Medora this summer, where the Medora musical began last night. We had a wonderful Rod Jaden golf tournament yesterday, a memorial golf tournament. Rod Jaden, having been the president uh, previously of the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation before our current and, and uh, uh, very adept and talented president, Randy Hudson Buehler, the Rod Jaden Memorial Tournament raises scholarship money for our uh, employees here and, and uh, does a wonderful job. To, uh, to everyone involved in making this world a better place, I salute you, get a little tickle out of my throat with my coffee this morning. I hope some of you out there know that TR quote, good to the last drop. Wanted to introduce you as well to a young man, uh, one of our scholarship winners previously, and a young man uh, who's uh, doing wonderful work here. Uh, that's the view of his back looking up in the mountains, but there's uh, there's Colton Kitely. Whoops, there's... <laughs> Where's your picture, Colton? There's Colton Kitely. He's bouncing around the mountains. Colton's an <clears throat> inspiring young man. Uh, he would tell you that uh, he's not defined by his cerebral palsy, uh, but that he is uh, inspired by the hardness of life to uh, overcome its challenges. The title of his book is The Worst Thing You Can Do Is Nothing. And he's taking that as part from something that Theodore Roosevelt said, uh, to paraphrase, uh, in a moment of quick decision, the best thing to do is the right thing. The next best thing to do is the wrong thing. The worst thing to do is nothing. Colton Kitely, now a published author, and uh, he does wonderful work here for us in our retail division. You can see him at the Medora Musical Concessions. But Colton is headed for a career in uh, entertainment production, probably a music production in the country mu music genre, where he has a, a good deal of friends and professional connections, and. And I think he's enjoying that uh, the Medora musical is always a wonderful country-western sort of show. Uh, wonderful uh, music uh, in the show this year. Thanks for your patience. I just uh, missed visiting with you. Uh, for so many of you have communicated back to me uh, again by note or personally here now in Medora uh, that uh, you've been along for the ride on Teddy Talks. Uh, I'm glad you have. I've missed our daily contact and 
Once a week isn't enough for me, but boy, are we getting busy in Medora. So remarks from President Theodore Roosevelt at the dedication of the Washington Memorial Chapel, Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, June 19th, 1904, uh, followed by and uh, concluding with then remarks on Washington's birthday for the return of the Great White Fleet. It is a pleasure to come here this afternoon and say a word on behalf of the project to erect a memorial chapel on this great historic site. Three weeks ago, I was at the field where the bloodiest and most decisive battle of the Civil War was fought. And it is a noteworthy thing that this state of Pennsylvania should have within its borders the places which mark the two turning points in our history. Gettysburg, which saw the high tide of the rebellion, and Valley Forge, which saw the getting beyond the danger point of the revolution. There have been two great crises in our national history, two crises where failure meant the absolute breaking asunder of the nation. One, the Revolutionary War, one, the Civil War. If the men who took to arms in 76 for national independence had failed, then not merely would there never have been a national growth on this continent, but the whole spirit of nationality for the younger lads of the world would have perished stillborn. If the men of 61 had failed in the great struggle for national unity, it would have meant that the work done by Washington and his associates might almost or quite as well have been left undone. There would have been no point in commemorating what was done at Valley Forge if Gettysburg had not given us the national right to commemorate it. If we were now split up into a dozen wrangling little communities, if we lacked the power to keep away here on our own continent, within our own lines, or to show ourselves a unit as against foreign aggression, then indeed the Declaration of Independence would read like empty sound and the Constitution would not be worth the paper upon which it was written, save as a study for antiquarians. There have been other crises, those that culminated during the War for Independence and the Great Civil War. There have been great deeds and great men at other periods of our national history, but there never has been another deed vital to the welfare of the nation save the two, the deed of those who founded and the deed of those who saved the Republic. There never has been another man whose life has been vital to the Republic save Washington and Lincoln. I am not here to say anything about Lincoln, but I do not see how any American can think of either of them without thinking of the other too, because they represent the same work. Think how fortunate we are as a nation. Think what it means to us as a people that our young men should have as their ideals two men, not conquerors, not men who have won glory by wrongdoing, not men whose lives were spent in their own advancement, but men who lived, one of whom died, that the nation might grow steadily greater and better the man who founded the Republic and took no glory from it himself, save what was freely given him by his fellow citizens, and that only in the shape of a chance of rendering them service, the man who afterwards saved the Republic, who saved the state, 
without striking down liberty. Often in history, a state has been saved and liberty struck down at the same time. Lincoln saved the Union and lifted the cause of liberty higher than before. Washington created the Republic, rose by statecraft to the highest position, and used that position only for the welfare of his fellows and for so long as his fellows wished him to keep it. It is a good thing that of these great landmarks of our history, Gettysburg and Valley Forge, one should commemorate a single tremendous effort and the other what we need on the whole much more commonly and what I think is, on the whole, rather more difficult to do long sustained effort. Only men with a touch of the heroic in them could have lasted out that three days struggle at Gettysburg. Only men fit to rank with the great men of all time could have beaten back the mighty onslaught of that gallant and wonderful army of Northern Virginia, whose final supreme effort faded at the stone wall on Cemetery Ridge on that July day 41 years ago. But after all, hard though it is to rise to the supreme height of self-sacrifice and of effort at a time of crisis that is short, to rise to it for a single great effort, it is harder yet to rise to the level of a crisis when that crisis takes the form of needing constant, patient, steady work, month after month, year after year, when too it does not end after a terrible struggle in a glorious day, when it means months of gloom and effort, steadfastly endured, and triumph rested only at the very end. Here at Valley Forge, Washington and his Continentals warred not against the foreign soldiery, but against themselves, against all the appeals of our nature that are most difficult to resist, against discouragement, discontent, the mean envies and jealousies and heart burnings sure to arise at any time in large bodies of men, but especially sure to arise when defeat and disaster have come to large bodies of men. Here, the soldiers who carried our national flag had to suffer from cold, from pri privation, from hardship, knowing that their foes were well housed, knowing that things went easier for others than it did for them. And they conquered because they had in them the spirit that made them steadfast, not merely on an occasional great day but day after day in the life of daily endeavor to do duty well. When two lessons are both indispensable, it seems hardly worthwhile to dwell more on one than on the other. Yet I think that as a people, we need more to learn the lesson of Valley Forge even than that of Gettysburg. I have not the slightest anxiety, but that this people, if the need should come in the future, will be able to show the heroism, the supreme effort that was shown at Gettysburg, though it may well be that it would mean a similar two years of effort, checked by disaster to lead up to it. But the vital thing for this nation to do is steadily to cultivate the quality which, which Washington and those under him so preeminently showed during the winter at Valley Forge, the quality of steady adherence to duty in the teeth of difficulty, in the teeth of discouragement and even disaster. 
the quality that makes a man do what is straight and decent, not one day when a great crisis comes, but every day, day in and day out, until success comes at the end. Of course, all of us are agreed that a prime national need is the need of commemorating the memories of the men who did greatly, fought highly, who fought, suffered, endured for the nation. It is a great thing to commemorate their lives, but after all, the worthy way to do so is to try to show by our lives that we have profited by them. If we show that the lives of the great men of the past have been to us incitements to do well in the present, then we have paid to them the only homage which is really worthy of them. If we treat their great deeds as matters merely for idle boasting, not as spurring us on to effort, but as excusing us from effort, then we show that we are not worthy of our sires, of the people who went before us in the history of our land. What we as a people need more than aught else is the steady performance of the everyday duties of life, not with hope of reward, but because they are duties. I spoke of how we felt that we had in Washington and Lincoln national ideals. I contrasted their names with the names of many others in history, names which will shine as brightly, but oh, with how much less power and light. I think you will find that the fundamental difference between our two great national heroes and almost any other men of equal note in the world's history is that when you think of our two men, you think inevitably not of glory, but of duty. Not of what the man did for himself in achieving name or fame or position, but of what he did for his fellows. They set the right ideal and also they lived up to it in practical fashion. Had either of them possessed that fantastic quality of mind which sets an impossible and perhaps an undesirable ideal, or which declines to do the actual work of the present, because forsooth the implements with which it is necessary to work are not to that man's choice, his fame would have been missed, his achievement would have crumbled into dust, and he would not have left one stroke on the book which tells of effort accomplished for the good of mankind. A man, to amount to anything, must be practical. He must actually do things, not talk about them. Least of all, cavil at how they are accomplished by those who actually go down into the arena and actually face the dust and the blood and the sweat, who actually triumphed in the struggle. The man must have the force, the power, the will to accomplish results, but he must have also the lift toward lofty things, which shall make him incapable of striving for aught unless that for which he strives is something honorable and high, something well worth striving for. I congratulate you that it is your good fortune to be engaged in erecting a, a memorial to the great man who was equal to the great days, to the man and the men who showed by their lives that they were indeed doers of the word and not hearers only. That last line, to Theodore Roosevelt's audience would have known, he was quoting James 1.22. Be thou not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word also. When Theodore Roosevelt took the oath of office in 1905, he had his family Bible open to that verse, James 1.22. 
and uh, concluding with remarks to Admiral Sperry and the uh, battle fleet on their return, February 22nd, 1909, out of date sequentially, but that having been Washington's birthday and uh, I feeling the need to uh, give some good feeling to the name of George Washington uh, that uh, we share with uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, these remarks made on Washington's birthday, George, George Washington's birthday, February 22nd, 1909, the last national and state holiday after George Washington that uh, Theodore Roosevelt enjoyed uh, serving as our president. Admiral Sperry, officers and men of the battle fleet, over a year has passed since you steamed out of this harbor and over the world's rim. And this morning, the hearts of all who saw you thrilled with pride as the holes of the mighty warships lifted above the horizon. You have been in the northern and the southern hemispheres. Four times you have crossed the line. You have streamed through all the great oceans. You have touched the coast of every continent. Ever your general course has been westward, and now you come back to the port from which you set sail. This is the first battle fleet that has ever circumnavigated the globe. Those who perform the feat again can but follow in your footsteps. The little torpedo flotilla went with you around South America, through the Straits of Magellan to our own Pacific coast. The armored cruiser squadron met you and left you again when you were halfway round the world. You have falsified every prediction of the prophets of failure. In all your long cruise, not an accident worthy of mention has happened to a single battleship, nor yet to the cruisers or torpedo boats. You left this coast in a high state of battle efficiency, and you return with your efficiency increased, better prepared than when you left, not only in personnel, but even in material. During your world cruise, you have taken your regular gunnery practices, and skilled though you were before with the guns, you have grown more skillful still, and through practice you have improved in battle tactics, though here there is more room for improvement than in your gunnery. Incidentally, I suppose I need hardly say that one measure of your fitness must be your clear recognition of the need always steadily to strive to render yourselves more fit. If you ever grow to think that you are fit enough, you can make up your minds that from that moment you will begin to go backward. As a war machine, the fleet comes back in better shape than it went out. In addition, you, the officers and men of this formidable fighting force, have shown yourselves the best of all possible ambassadors and heralds of peace. Wherever you have landed, you have borne yourselves so as to make us at home proud of being your countrymen. You have shown us that the best type of fighting man of the sea knows how to appear to the utmost possible advantage when his business is to behave himself on shore and to make a good impression in a foreign land. We are proud of all the ships and all the men in this whole fleet, and we welcome you home to the country whose good repute among nations has been raised by what you have done. The remarks of Theodore Roosevelt on Washington's birthday, uh, February 22nd, 1909. I hope that this has come through to you okay. I'm getting a little funny error message again. 
Uh, we're going to improve some of the technology uh, with a, a direct link uh, to our uh, uh, internet system here. Uh, that will replace a Wi-Fi connection that I think has been the uh, little bit of trouble that we've had. Thanks for your patience with me. Look forward to seeing you next Saturday. Uh, we may again have a bit of a, a brief uh, visit uh, for some logistics involved on that wonderful day, June 27th. And uh, I am still working on some logistics for our July 4th to follow. Uh, we'll find us at regular broadcast time in the parade in Dickinson celebrating July 4th. So we'll have to see you. Keep an eye here for future notices about Teddy Talks. Thank you for joining in. Look forward to your comments. And in the words of Theodore Roosevelt, goodbye and good luck. Have a wonderful day. Hope to see some of you in Medora.